Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Last week we looked at chapters 18 through 22, and we saw that uh, what holiness looked like for the individual and for the community. And this week we're going to see what holiness looks like based on the various times of the year. It's talking about the appointed feasts, the holy convocations as they're called. And what we're going to see is that that we must reflect often on the works of God. These feasts, these festivals, were designed to cause Israel to reflect purposefully on the things of God and on His works. And we ought to do the same thing. We ought to reflect on His works. In chapter 23, we see that reflecting on God's works happens through regular reminders. Reflecting on God's works happens through regular reminders. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times, are these. Then he's going to list several of them. And as he's going through the very last one, We come to verse 37, which is the Feast of Booths, and he kind of summarizes the the passage. He says this in verse 37, These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. Besides, Uh, besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive and freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. So in other words, in addition to all the normal things that you do, the Sabbaths, and all the normal offerings that you bring, these feasts are supposed to be a part of who you are as a people, as individuals. So you need to recognize these. In verse 2, they're called holy convocations just simply another way of saying holy conventions or holy assemblies or or religious feasts, religious festivals. These are times when the nation would gather as a whole, when the people of God would come together and, and celebrate the past works of God and the current works of God. And notice their responsibility here in verse 37. These are the appointed times of the Lord which you shall proclaim. And then verse 38, Besides those of the Sabbath and besides your gifts, besides all your votives and free will offerings. So these appointed times, verse 37, were designed for the people to remember God and His works. And then to offer Him appropriate thanksgiving. And so these were days that were marked out on the calendar that they would just know these were a part of who we are as a people that we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to go, in this case, they're still out in the wilderness, but we're going to go to the tabernacle. We're going to to um, celebrate what God has done. The very first one that's listed is not probably not a holy convocation. It's the Sabbath day in, verses, uh, in verse 3. It's probably just reminding them of the normal remembrance, the, the normal reminder 
that would have been on their calendar. Notice verse 3. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. In other words, this is not something to be done yearly. This is done regularly. This is a holy assembly that you do every Saturday. There must be a time every week to set apart the people to rest and reflect on God. We'll spend more time talking about this next week because next week we're going to see the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, and then the Sabbath Sabbath, which is the seventh Sabbath year. It's known as the year of Jubilee. It's actually the year following it. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Sabbath next week. But for now, we should recognize that resting would interrupt their normal pattern of life. It's not normal for them to stop doing work in an agricultural society. It would remind them, this God requiring them to rest, would remind them that it is God who provides. It is God who gives. The importance of the Sabbath is not the day of the week, the seventh day, but rather what the day symbolizes. And the reason that it was set up, if you go back, remember, this is not a brand new commandment. Start observing the Sabbath. When did they first see this? In Exodus chapter 20, right? The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day and keep it what? Keep it holy. And the reason that you're supposed to do that is because I created the world, God says, in six days. And on the seventh day, I rested. And so you ought to rest as well. It's a commemoration of what God has done. It symbolized rest for God and it symbolized rest for His people. Coming to church once a week is not a fulfillment of Sabbath rest. Sunday is not our Old Testament Sabbath day or our New Testament Sabbath day. It's not a fulfillment of Sabbath rest. Rather, a Christian must live his entire life in the rest that Christ provides. That is, Christ fulfilled the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was not... Uh, man was not made for the Sabbath day, as was read earlier, but man was ma- uh, but the Sabbath day was made for man. It was only temporary to show us that, that Christ actually has fulfilled it in His coming. And the Sabbath that we're looking forward to is actually a final Sabbath, a final rest from all of the, the work that is going on, the struggle against sin and so on. we're truly going to sanctify ourselves like the people of Israel sanctified themselves one day a week, then we need to really give all of our lives. It means giving all that we have. That's when we find blessing. That's when we enjoy the rest that God has planned. So, now that we've looked at the normal one that they already, they're already aware of, they already know about the Sabbath day, now God institutes through His man Moses seven festivals that the Jews were supposed to to commemorate. A time when they would come together, these holy convocations. There are four in the spring and three in the fall. Okay, in verses, four, uh, verses 5 through 22, we have the spring festivals. And then in verses 23 through 44, we have the fall festivals. So let's begin with the first four, which are spring festivals. The very first one is, is there in verses 4 and 5. 
This is the most important. It's one of the most important, I should say. It was the Passover. Verse 4 says, These are the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim. It's kind of introduction to the whole section. Verse 5. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now, again, some of these they had already heard about and knew about. In fact, turn back to Exodus chapter 12 because they were told that they were going to be commemorating this Passover before they even were were passed over. I mean, before the the houses were passed over, before uh, the event even took place, they were told that they were going to be commemorating this event for years to come. Exodus chapter 12. And look with me at verse 14. Now, this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord, a holy convocation. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Okay, so they knew this is the night of the, the time in which they were supposed to put the blood on the doorposts. And God says to them, you're going to commemorate this day. This is going to be the day. That for generations to come, you're going to be reminded about what happens. So, before they're even rescued, God is telling them that they must observe a memorial of this day. It doesn't actually happen. The rescue doesn't happen until verse 29. Skip down to verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron and at night and said, Rise up and get out from among my people both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take, take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go bless me also. So, God rescues them in verse 29, but tells them to memorialize this day in verse 14. Now, the instructions for this memorial are given in verses 14 through 20. And then, in verses 23-27, through 27, we have the purpose. So let's read those and see if we can get an understanding of why set up a memorial for the Passover. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord gives you, and He has promised you, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, What does this rite mean to you? You shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. The Passover was something that they were to remember for years to come. They were supposed to reflect back on God's deliverance of this great event, the Exodus. And we now know, on this side of the cross, you can turn back to Leviticus 23, we now know that the Passover actually pointed forward to something. 
that it pointed forward toward the redemption that Christ would provide. That His blood would be enough for God to pass over us. Not deal with us according to our sin, but to graciously give us forgiveness when we trusted in that blood. When we trusted in that Savior who provided the blood. In verses 6-8 through of Leviticus 23, we have the second festival, the second memorial. And it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that they would celebrate every year. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread would follow the Passover. It was coupled with the Passover. It began on the day after. It began on the 15th day of the first month. Now, when you think of the first month, when you see this in the text, remember that their first month is not our first month. They're on a different calendar than us. So their first month happens between March and April. And it changes from year to year because they add an extra month every three years. Let's read about this in verses 6-8. through eight. Then on the fifteenth day of the same month, that is the first month, there is a feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall, you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So the first and last day were sacred assemblies. Everybody would come together and celebrate through sacrificing and thanksgiving what God had done. And they would do this through some eating of unleavened bread. Now why, why was this called the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Why eat unleavened bread? Anyone have any ideas? Right? It went along with the Passover. Remember that night, they, were, they, didn't, they didn't have time to fix leavened bread. They didn't have the time for the yeast and the bread to rise. And so, uh, and, and, and the dough, that is. And so they, they, had, they ate unleavened bread and it showed them that it was to remind them, Deuteronomy 16 tells us, it was to remind them that they left Egypt in a hurry. It was so that they could constantly remember that God had spared them, but they were actually running for their lives. If they had waited around too long, then they could have been destroyed. And so, for us, the unleavened bread looks forward to a time when we will have a life of holiness. Not just for a week or for a year, but forever. For Israel, it pointed to a time when they would be free from the corruption of the world. We've heard before that the the leaven, in fact, in the New Testament, talks about the leaven being a symbol of corruption or evil. On this side of the cross, we have a clearer picture of how Christ's redemption contributes to our holiness, our unleavened life, so to speak. That Christ provides the redemption through the Passover event And then He expects us to engage our lives in holiness, in uncorrupted living. So we have the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the third ceremony or festival in the spring that they were responsible to take part in is found in verses 9-14. through The Feast of the First Fruits. This is the next religious festival on the Jewish calendar, and it was called the Feast of the First Fruits. It required that each Jewish family bring some of the first fruits of their harvest. Now, it's likely, since it was in March or April, that this was probably the barley harvest since it ripened earlier. And so the very first part of that harvest was brought 
and an offering to God. It was a reminder to Israel that it was not they who provided for themselves, but it was God who provided for them. It was God who prospered them. It was God who gave them what they needed. It required faith on the part of the farmer because he had to give of the very uh, first of what he had received from his harvest. Remember, they're not getting their, their living necessarily from money, but really from resources. And so the very first part of their resources are given back to God while they don't know if the next part of their resources are going to come in. And so it required great faith on their part. The temptation for them might be to give to God if there's any extra at the end, right? A man has to live, right? So what if he gathered in his harvest and then at the end of the year, after he stored up what he needed for the next year and sold enough to provide for his current and future needs, then if he had some left over, then he could bring it to God and give it as an offering to God. I mean, wouldn't God be pleased with that? And what God was teaching them was, no, I want the first of what you have. I want you to to depend on Me. I want you to lean heavily on Me so that you're giving Me the first of what you have. And, And for us, we are like Jewish farmers, that God expects us to give the first fruits of what we have to Him and trust Him to supply what we need from day to day. I'm often reminded of the Lord's Prayer where it says, give us this month our daily bread, our our monthly bread, right? Give us this year our yearly bread. Provide enough for us, God, so that we can make it through this year. No, it's a day-by-day reliance upon God, isn't it? He wants us to pray for our needs every day. One of the ways that we can do that is by giving the very first of what we have. Before we move to the next festival, look at verse 14. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall neither eat bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Now at the time of this command, where was Israel? Where were they? In the wilderness. And what were they eating? Manna. And what is God telling them to do here? Give of your harvest. He's not saying give of the manna. He's saying once you actually receive the land, the very first crop that you bring in, the very first part of that belongs to Me. Because I'm the one who's giving it to you. And every year after that, it belongs to Me. What a great amount of faith they would need to hear something like this. We haven't even got anything, God, and you're already asking for things. But God's saying, no, you trust me. It's coming. I'm going to give you the land. You're going to conquer those Canaanites. You're going to be in the land, and when you do, give it to me. Give me what is owed to me. The next and the final feast in the spring is the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, in verses 15-22. through 22. This is the final spring festival. It's called the Feast of Weeks. It was a period of seven Sabbaths. Seven Sabbath days, as we see in verse 15. And it led up to the third month 
and the first day where they would have a sacred assembly and a grain offering. And the time between this day and the first fruits, so if we go back to the first fruits, they're giving up of the first part of their barley harvest all the way to the first month of the uh, first day of the third month. There's a period of 49 days, seven Sabbaths. So, so the first fruits really would not end right away. They would start giving God some of their resources, and then throughout the next seven weeks, they would give more to God. It was a sacred gathering that, that we now know as Pentecost. And these 50 days were an opportunity for Israel to reflect on God's provision, not just His one-time provision, the first fruits, but His ongoing provision. The harvest is coming in and, and we're going to continue to give to God and give thanks to Him accordingly. The natural result of God's redemption, Passover, and our holy living, unleavened bread, is Pentecost. It is Pentecost. It's the time of thanksgiving. It's the time that pointed to this work that happened in Acts chapter 2 where, where people came united together around the power of the Spirit and then sent out for the sake of God's glory. And here's what we ought to do in response to what God has done to us. His great redemption that He's provided for us and this demand for holy living should naturally respond to us uniting together as God's people and then being sent out for God's glory. So the spring festivals uh, through verse 22, verses 4 through 22. Then the fall festivals in verses 23 through 44. The fall festivals. The first festival is one called the Feast of Trumpets in verse 23. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. The very first festival in the fall really leads into the second. When the dust settled from all the busyness between this time, see some of their barley harvest is coming in, but the rest of their harvest is still growing throughout this time that they're gone. Then they come back for these fall festivals. And so now that the dust is settled from the busyness of all of that work, bringing in the harvest, then there's a blast of the trumpet. It would cause the people to, to, to be reminded that they need to come in and come in and assemble and think about and reflect on the things of God. In our day, the Jews call this day Rosh Hashanah which literally means the head or the beginning of the year. It's the Jewish New Year. It takes place in the seventh month on their calendar, the first day. It's around September. And it points our attention to when we know that there's going to be a trumpet that sounds for us. And when will that be? Right? First Thessalonians 4, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, will be transformed. There will be a shout, a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will also be caught up with Him to be with the Lord forever, and so we will ever be with the Lord. It's a trumpet call that brings us home. It's a trumpet call that 
brings us into eternal rest, eternal reflection on God. And so this was the very first festival of the fall. Nine days later, it led to one of the most important of all the festivals, and it is something we've already talked about. Verses 26 to 32, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. We looked at this when we, when we uh, studied chapter 16 together. The focus in that chapter was on the responsibility of the priests. Remember how he had to take a bull for a sin offering and a, and a ram for a burnt offering. And he had to pay for, or, or had to uh, offer those in response for his own sin and the rest of the priests. And then he also had to take two goats from the, for the people's sin and then a ram for their, for their burnt offering. One of the goats was killed. It was slain and offered up for their sin. The other goat was used for what? A scapegoat, right? And the priest would put his hands on the head of the scapegoat and it was a picture of their sin being removed far away from them. So the focus in chapter 16 when we looked at it was primarily on the priest and his responsibility. But I want you to notice here that the priest is, or the focus is primarily on the people, what their responsibility is in the Day of Atonement. Now we did allude to this and we quickly talked about this when we looked at chapter 16. But here it's primarily on the people and their responsibility. Let's read verse 27 and following. On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on the same day, for it's the Day of Atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on the same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. The Day of Atonement was to be a time where there are at least two things going on. Number one, it was to be a day of rest. Did you notice how many times you shall do no work? If you do work, you're going to be cut off from my people. I'll cut you off, God says. So no work. It's supposed to be a day of rest. And then number two, it's a day for them to humble their souls or literally afflict their souls to reflect on what was necessary for, to provide for their sins. We talked about this when we looked at chapter 16, that it was because of the people's sins, because of the priests' sins, that these animals had to die, that they had to be sacrificed. And so they were to humble themselves and to do no work on this day. It was to be a Sabbath to God, to reflect on what God needed to atone for their sins. For us as Christians, this is the central theme in all of our lives. It is the thing that gives you and, and I identity. It is that God redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that you can say about yourself greater than you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I'm reminded of a famous pastor from the previous century who was asked after he retired, after 40 or 50 years of service, Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps you've heard of him. After he retired, people came up to him and asked, you know, how's it going to be? Not in the position of leadership? Not being able to kind of have people, direct people to where they need to go, what they need to do? What's that going to be like? He said, you know, the thing that I count as most important, those things don't matter as much. As much as the fact that I have my name written down in heaven. There's nothing more important to me than my identity with Christ. Not my identity as a leader. I don't have to be in that position. But the fact that my name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. Christian, there is no greater identity that you have than that you are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater that you can say about yourself. And we understand that this Day of Atonement in the Old Testament pointed forward to the atonement that we would have. And we don't have to do this once a year, have Christ sacrifice for us, but that He fulfills all that was represented there in the Day of Atonement. Specifically, those two goats. In Christ's first coming, He came to be the sacrifice for our sins, didn't He? He was like the one goat who was taken, His blood was spilled, and then poured on the altar. Poured on the mercy seat. So that's what happened in His first coming. He paid for our sins. In the second coming, Christ will remove our sins completely. They will never be able to hinder us ever again. Now, there is a sense in which, as far as uh, God's declaration of us, our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. God doesn't remember them in the sense that He doesn't act upon them. But we all recognize that sin still plagues us, doesn't it? So in that second coming, Christ will completely remove sin from our lives. We will be glorified. Christ is like that scapegoat. It's as if the priest puts his hand on the head of Christ and our sins are being transferred to Him and now He's taken out into the wilderness like Hebrews says, outside the camp and and suffers for us. He is our sacrifice and He is our scapegoat. The final assembly, the final festival in the fall and in the year it's called the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths. It's from verses 33 through 44. This takes place five days after the Day of Atonement. Five days after the Day of Atonement. On the first day and the last day of the Feast of Booths, they were supposed to hold sacred assemblies. They were supposed to gather together, bring offerings, worship together. And on the days in between, notice what they were to do. Verse 40. On the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. 
It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall, here's what they have to do, live in booths for seven days. And all the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. You see the purpose in verse 43? It was to remind them and future generations that God provided for them while they were in the wilderness. Remember, they're in the wilderness while God is telling them that they're going to need to commemorate this day. After the Day of Atonement, five days after, they're supposed to live in booths. Now, while they're in the wilderness, obviously they already are, but but they were supposed to, once they got into the Promised Land, where they were settled down in their own homes, set up some sort of tents with these various... Uh, uh, leaves and and, um, and willows and branches and so on to remind them that God had brought them out of Egypt and provided for them while they were living in tents throughout the 40 years. And I think for us as Christians this should remind us that we are wanderers on this earth. That, that this cursed earth that in which we live is not our home. That it's not supposed to be like this. And that God will restore everything through His Son. It reminds us of the life to come when we will enjoy our Savior who will make all things new. He will restore this earth to its rightful place and reign on this earth, rule on this earth for 1,000 years. And then following that, He will recreate this earth and make a new heaven and a new earth. In chapter 24, we have a reflection on um, on the basics. Reflecting on God's work, number one, happens through regular reminders. Number two, reflecting on God's work requires that we remember the basics. Reflecting on God's works requires that we remember the basics. Verses 1-9, through nine, we're not going to read through it, but this but this section is about lighting the, the lamps in the tabernacle. And it's about placing the showbread on the table. These little unleavened cakes, little bread that were put on the table. Twelve of them. Why, why put this section here? We just got done talking about festivals. And then next chapter, chapter 25, we're going to look at uh, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. So why, why put this in here? And I think it was a reminder for them that the daily responsibilities could not be forgotten. We, we ha- can't forget the basics when we take special time out to reflect on God and His works. The temptation might be to forget about what we normally have responsibility to God to do. And in this case, it was to keep that light going, to keep it burning so that people knew that God was always available to provide atonement for His people. And the bread was a symbol of God's gift. And then, number three, reflecting on God's works results in covenant faithfulness. Reflecting on God's works results in covenant faithfulness. Verses 10-23 through of chapter 24. Would you follow along as I read verse 10? Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. The son of Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. 
So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was, was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Now, what's happening here is that there's a person, a young man, who gets in a fight and he blasphemes the name. And it's capital in the New American Standard to show us that it's referring to the name of God. He's, he blasphemed God. Now this is brought before God and, and the people are going to have to respond in some way. And so you might be thinking about this story and thinking, well, why would you say reflecting on God's works results in covenant faithfulness? This guy blasphemed. So I'm not talking about him. Of course, he wasn't covenantly faithful. What I'm talking about is the people's response to his covenant unfaithfulness. They are being faithful. Notice God's expectation in verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. God has a standard because something very important is at stake here. And what is it? It's God's name. It's God's reputation. He deserves and demands that He be set apart in their lives and with their lips. And as a result of them carelessly treating God's name, or this person specifically, they were to be put to death. There was judgment. And that's why it goes in verses 17-22 through 22 and goes into talking about the law of retribution. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We don't have time to read through this. Perhaps this, this uh, passage is familiar to you. I'll just say that there is some debate as to whether this is literal or not. That is, did they actually cut off a person's hand when, uh, a, when the offender cut, it off, cut off someone else's hand? It's not exactly clear. Maybe they made them pay some sort of restitution. Now, obviously, there are, there are people who take it that way, and there are still people who live today in that, with that sort of mindset. But at the very least, what we do know this is referring to is that when, it, when a person takes another person's life, their life is to be taken. Well, not just by anybody who wants to, but by the government. Genesis 9.6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And that responsibility is given to the human government that God has placed over us. Romans chapter 13 talks about that. What ultimately at stake here is the image of God in man. That God is trying to protect those who are made in His image. If a person kills an animal that's not theirs, they don't have to die for the sake of that animal, for killing that animal. They do have to provide restitution. But if a person kills someone else made in the image of God, then they have to give their life. They have to die because of their foolishness. Now, why put a narrative section like this in here? Why, why include a narrative section on blasphemy and a section about festivals and rest and celebration? I think it's because the Jew could very easily get piled up in all their responsibilities regarding holiness and holy days. And in so doing, forget that God has something very important in mind here. It's the reputation of His own name. The reverence 
of His own character. And so He gives an illustration of what it might be look like, what it might look like in order for unholiness to reach the camp of Israel and how Israel was supposed to respond. And in so doing, God was showing that it's not about the days. It's not about the laws. It's about Him. It's about reverencing Him. Revering Him. We must live in the same way. Recognizing that all these responsibilities that God gives to us, again, I mentioned this morning earlier, that we sometimes put all these things on the same plane. As if God wants us to do all of them with the same fervor. And then when one of them gets into uh, conflict with another, then I guess we can't fully obey Him. I think God is showing us that there's a hierarchy of laws and responsibilities. And the primary thing that we need to keep in mind is that God is the most important thing in all of life. The most important being. And we should not take His name in vain as they heard in Exodus 20. They should not promise something to God that they don't plan to follow through on. They should not use God as a means to an end, but recognize that He is the end. And all of life should be used to accomplish His purposes. And so we need to set apart God's name. That's the most important of all we can do. That's why Jesus said the very first and greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to revere Him as someone who's worthy of our love. So Leviticus 23 and 24. Festivals, keeping the, uh, the basics happening, and then revering God as holy in the last part of chapter 24. So let me leave you with two points of application this morning. Number one, reflect on the works of God often. Reflect on the works of God often. The feasts were there for Israel to cause them to be reminded about the rest that they needed from their work. And the purpose of that rest was not just for rest's sake, but for the sake of them reflecting on God's character and God's promises and God's provisions. And so it would require them to just stop and think, what has God done for me? Ambassador Baptist Church, how much more should we rejoice as Christ's church for what God has done for us? For the fact that He has bought us with His, the blood of His Son. How much more should we enjoy the spiritual benefits that have been given to us and that have been promised to us? How much more should we reflect on them on a regular basis so that we don't forget God in the sense that we don't act according to what we know? Not that we ever, oh, I, I didn't know God still existed. It's that we don't act as if He's done anything for us. That's the idea of forgetting in the Bible. So what can we do individually and as a church to remember the works of God often? What can we do to remember His works in the past, the distant history, and in the recent history? What can we do? Well, I think we remember God's works and His in recent and past history when we come to meet every week. So one of the very simple things that we can do is just meet together as a people of God where we are reminded about God's distant works in our lives and the Scriptures 
and God's recent works as we fellowship with one another. We find out about how God's working in someone's lives, life and how He's strengthening them and providing for them. But I think we need to do more than that. We shouldn't just come to church and that will be enough to remember God's works. We, we ought to have a purposeful time of remembrance. I'm so thankful for this opportunity we've had this summer to reflect on some of the past graces of our church as we've had uh, four of our previous pastors come and preach to us. And we were able to see many of the former members of this church who haven't been here for a while, who have moved on to other places. And it was good to be reminded about how God has been gracious to us and giving us a great spiritual inheritance at this church. You know, some may look at you know bringing in people from the past and thinking about the past and say, you know, time to move on. Forget about this day, those days. Let's think about the future now. But I think forgetting our distant and recent past is a recipe for deviation and eventually abandonment from the faith. We can't forget from where we came. So I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of the distant past, of what God has done for us, and the recent past, what God is doing for us this week. Like for Israel, it was they got this harvest that's coming in, and they're reminded that God is providing for them. Reflect on the works of God often. Number two, reflect on God's works with joy. Reflect, reflect on the work of God, the works of God, with joy. Look at chapter twenty-three. Verse 40, because sometimes when we think of these celebrations, we think of people oh, just being really depressed and distressed and cutting themselves by you know, throwing ashes on, putting it on sackcloth. But notice chapter 23, verse 40. This is talking about the Feast of Booths. Now on the first day you shall take for yourself the, fo- the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. These festivals were designed not for morbid introspection. Oh, how terrible of a person I am. There's a time for that. Sometimes we focus way too much on that. But these should be a time of joy reflecting on what God has done for us. That God is providing for us. That God promises to continue to provide for us. Like for them, they're still in the wilderness. And God's saying... When you get your first crops, remember me. Our reflection on God should be done with great joy, shouldn't it? How do you reflect on God's works? When do you reflect on God's works? And when you do, does it cause your heart to be stirred with joy? Or does it just cause you to be more miserable than you already were? See, God has provided in great ways for us and we ought to respond to Him with great joy. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the works that You've done in our lives in providing for us atonement and giving us the strength to walk in holiness and to grow in holiness. Lord, the very least that we can do is to give ourselves and our resources for your purposes, to to serve you with great joy, with a proper heart. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.